I often regret not doing so. Genesis chapter 2, and we are looking at verses 4 through 17 today. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's pray. Father, we pause in our morning and rejoice that we can come into your presence together in this way. We worship you, Lord. We declare that you alone are God, that you are the one who has created us in all things. And we owe you everything. We owe you our existence. We owe you our ongoing existence as you sustain us. And we rejoice in your mercy and in this salvation that we have in Christ, which is from you. Father, this morning as we open your word, as we look at this chapter, we pray that you would be at work in us, that you by your spirit would minister to us as your word is open before us, that you would have your way in us. Pray that you would help us not to be distracted by uh, the things going on in our lives, uh, what came before, what will come after, things that are, uh, many of them, very, very important. But for this moment, may we turn our attention to your word and may you minister to us even in this time. So we ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, before I get started, I do want to remind you of the blast zone here that if you are a uh, child and you want to take notes in this, I guess if there's some less left and you can wrestle it out of the hands of someone else. If you're not a child, you could also do that. But at the end, 
Miss Brianna will be up front uh, to discuss with you what you learned, and it's an opportunity for you to take notes even during uh, the sermon at this time. When uh, my wife and I meet new people, or uh, maybe as we're getting to know people better, we often like to tell our story of how we got together. And probably every couple enjoys uh, telling that, and, and we think ours is very special, and we love telling that story. Uh, but it's funny when we tell ours, because there's a lot of uh, ins and outs and ups and downs. And, and uh, oddly enough, when she tells the story, I end up looking a little silly in places. <laughs> and I, I don't quite understand why that's the case, but I, I tell it one way, and you know she tells it another way, and... My question for us to, to think about just for a second is, when she tells it her way, is she telling it wrong? Yes. <laughs> I can't believe you would think that was not the case. I, I know, right? You would think I would have by now, but no. <laughs> when she tells the story, she tells it for a purpose. And when I tell it, I'm telling it for a purpose. Right, And so when she tells the story, though the events are roughly the same and we might highlight certain things differently and uh, from when I tell it or whatever, we're telling it for a particular purpose. And often it's uh, we're telling it to kind of make fun of ourselves or, or something like that. But the way you tell a story is determined by the purpose that you intend to tell that story. And that is important for us as we look at Genesis chapter 2 because the astute reader will have noticed that reading through Genesis 1 is very different from reading through Genesis 2. And liberal scholars over the years have postulated that, oh, it's, you know, first of all, they're both myths, and they're myths from different traditions, and, and the editor, whoever put together Genesis, just clumsily shoved them together and never bothered to work them together. That's the... the Liberal scholars have pursued that route for a long time, but I think that's utterly uh, unnecessary in this case. The fact that Genesis 1 reads differently than Genesis chapter 2 doesn't cause us a problem when we look at what he's accomplishing in Genesis 1 in contrast to what he's accomplishing in Genesis chapter 2. But first of all, what are some of these differences? Well, first of all, there's a different sequence of the created uh, order. In chapter 1, you have vegetation and birds, fish, animals, man, woman. In chapter 2, you've got man, vegetation, animals, woman. Right? You've got a different order. And you notice, probably while I was reading through this, a big difference between chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that in chapter 1, the author refers to God. God did this and God said that. That's the word Elohim. But in chapter 2, it's the Lord God. Yahweh Elohim. There's a different name used for God. And the first one, Elohim, has to do with his, his majesty and his transcendence over all of creation. And so you, you see that as a big theme in chapter 1. Chapter 2, Yahweh is the covenant name of Israel. So the Lord God, the covenant God with whom we have to deal is the one that's being discussed. So we read about Yahweh Elohim in chapter 2. You'll notice in chapter 1, God creates by speaking. In chapter 2, he gets his hands dirty. He's like a craftsman. He takes dust and he forms it into the man. Right? He takes the rib and he's going he's gonna to form that into the woman. He's like a craftsman building in that way. There's another difference in that they differ in theme. 
in the, the in what story is being told. Chapter 1 is about the origins and the nature of the whole cosmos. And chapter 2 is about the origins and the nature of man. So there's a different story being told. There's a different emphasis. And we can see in connection with that a different style. A lot more repeated language in chapter 1, a lot more poetic uh, type language in chapter 1 versus uh, simple kind of prose of chapter 2. So there are differences between 1 and 2, and we need not to ignore them, nor do I think we need to be bothered at all by them. And that's uh, because of what I see as the purposes for those differences. First of all, the area of geography and focus is very different between 1 and 2. Chapter 1, he's talking about the whole world. The entire cosmic order is what he's describing. Chapter 2, he's focusing on a garden. It's a localized story. It's about what happened in a, uh, a smaller place in a garden. And that's because, secondly, the different aspects of God's rule are being emphasized in chapter 1 versus chapter 2. Chapter 1 is all about God's relationship with all of creation. He is the originator. He's the one who designed it. He's the one who spoke it into being. It exists because of his work, and the emphasis is on all of creation, the entire created order. But in the second chapter, the emphasis is very different. It's on God's special covenant relationship with mankind. The focus is there. And so you have the Lord God being discussed, not just God in general. And so I think we're going to see as we read through and work through our passage today that you can identify some of those differences between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And it's not this liberal uh, theologian's notion that, that it's just a clumsy uh, shoving together of two different stories that both talk about the beginning, so let's put them in chapter 1 and chapter 2, though they're not related. No, the author has a very clear purpose in mind for the way he told one and the way he's telling two. And so, what is man's origin? We see in verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. If you paid attention to that as you read through it, you saw a reversal of the word order there. And I think he's trying to indicate to us, even by that simple line, that the story is going to be different. Whereas the focus had been on one scale, now the focus is on a different scale. He's uh, changing it up and he's going to talk about something different. We can expect chapter 2 and the description of the creation there to be different than we saw in chapter 1. So the earth and the heavens, uh, the, the, the heavens and the earth, he's, he's reversing that word order to draw us right down into the discussion that he is making. And notice in verses 5 and 6, uh, when there was no man. We, we read that when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. The gardener was missing. There was a garden, but there wasn't a gardener. Right? And a mist or a stream was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So it's a, it's a rough land. It's it's incomplete because there's no man there. And scholars debate what exactly this mist is or what exactly this stream is. And, and they, they think that this might have something to do with irrigation. And you've got water, but it's not in the right place. It's not on the field or it's not where you need it. So you've got to redirect the water. And of course, Phalanites understand 
redirecting water because if we didn't have irrigation, there'd be nothing here, right? And so there needed a man, needed to be a man in the garden in order to put that together. There needed to be a, uh, a gardener within the garden. It's like a, a saddle with no rider. It's incomplete. There's something lacking. And so the earth was incomplete. It can't really function as it ought to without the man placed in the garden. So there's a sense of incompletion at this point because there is no man in the garden yet. Look at verse 7. That being the case with, with, with the, the land being sort of incomplete and the garden not really put together and, and stuff not growing like it ought to and whatnot, we see in verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. He took some dust, some dirt, and he put it together to fashion this man. I think that helps us to, it should help us to retain a little bit of humility about, about what we really are in the grand scheme of all things. He made us out of dirt. He didn't leave us as dirt, but that's our origin. That's what we come from, the dust of the ground. And so it ought to, it ought to convey a little bit of, of humility to us. But he didn't just you know, make a, a little mud figure like a snowman out of dirt and, and then call it good. He breathed into it the breath of life. And it went from being an inanimate object, an inanimate you know, clump of, of stuff into a living being. What a, what a unique thing that, that God took this inanimate stuff and made us a living being by breathing into us the breath of life. It takes life to make life. You could fashion little men made out of mud till the cows come home. And you could do all kinds of science experiments. And you could employ all kinds of different techniques. You will not produce life. That dirt requires life to be given to it. Life comes from life. And this is one of the many fatal flaws of naturalistic evolution that believes that that there was some goo somewhere and, and somehow because of a lightning strike or something else that life arose and then that life mutated over time to become us. Where did the life come from? Where did it begin? It takes life to make life. I remember watching a video one time that was, uh, we were working through it with the youth and, and uh, they were interviewing a very famous uh, atheist and atheistic scientist who has written all kinds of stuff and he's uh, a well-known figure and whatnot. And, and so the, the, the questioner was pressing him on this issue about where did life come from? Because it must have come from somewhere. Did it, did it, come, did it, did it morph from non-life into life somehow? Well, that didn't make any sense. And even to this atheistic philosopher, that didn't make sense. And he was trying to identify where this life come and so came, came from. And you know what his answer was? The aliens brought it. That was his answer. For reals. I thought, what is this guy doing? He's got a PhD and he's respected and whatnot. And the, and the final solution in his mind, the answer for how life got to this earth 
was that aliens brought it from somewhere else. Which, of course, solves nothing. Because where did the aliens get it? It was astounding to listen to that. This is, this is a, a fatal flaw of that system. They do not have a place where we get life. And so if you're, if you're sharing the gospel with someone or you're, or you're contemplating sharing the gospel with someone, there's a coworker, maybe you've got, you know, Uncle Joey who, you know, is going to be there for Easter dinner and, and he's an atheist and he's going to, he's going to argue these tough things. Don't, don't back down. He doesn't have the answers. He has questions. He has problems that he's identified as problems. And the Bible has answers. And though you and I may not know off the cuff what those answers are, we can be confident that they are here. And so you can go toe-to-toe with Uncle Joey. And you can say, I disagree. Where do you think life comes from? Did aliens deliver it? He doesn't have an answer. You can stand on the truth of the Bible. Now, he may be smarter than you. He may have questions to which you don't know the answers. That happens. It's not a big deal. You can find out the answer. You can, you can keep uh, going in, in research and, and try to continue that conversation. But, but what I want you to understand is that we have all of the solid footing. It is ours. Don't back down just because you think that in your mind you can't accurately represent it. We stand on the rock. He stands on the shifting sands. So have confidence in that discussion. Man's origin is that God created him and imparted life to him. Where did life come from on this earth? God gave it to us. Where did God get it? He is self-existent. He has always had it. He is life. And so we see this beginnings of, of man on the scene and God breathing that breath of life into this, this little man that he fashioned out of dirt and it becomes a living being so that here you and I are. But now that he's got this living being, how are man's needs going to be met? You know, the breath of life came directly from God into his nostrils Where are man's needs going to be met? Well, we see, first of all, in verse 8, that there are trees there that bear fruit that is good for food. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. He lives in a garden. So he's got the produce of the garden that he can eat. God has designed this world, he's designed even this garden, to be a self-sustaining one, that it feeds the man. And so he doesn't have to uh, have food specially delivered from God. It's planted right there and it grows out of the ground and he can take it and eat it. That, That garden provides for his needs. But there are two unique trees in the garden. Verse 9, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you've got all these trees, they're beautiful, and they're good for food and all this, and and that's been put in the garden there, but then you've got these two unique trees. The tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what, what do these 
trees about. They stand out. They're unusual. They have names, and most trees don't have names. And in this context, they clearly stand out. Well, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, Jesus is uh, dictating a letter to the church at Ephesus, and he says at the conclusion of that letter, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers or overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So here in our story, we're all the way back in the beginnings in the garden, and you've got the tree of life there in the garden. We don't read a whole lot about the tree of life, but we see that in Revelation, there's this tree of life. And here in chapter 2 of Revelation, you've got this promise that the one who overcomes will get to eat of that tree in the paradise of God. The tree's still there. Maybe it's not there in the same geographical location that we're reading about in Genesis chapter 2, but it's in the garden, the paradise of God. And those who overcome get to take and eat of that tree of life. And then in Revelation 22 and verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. It's life. It's life-giving It's eternal life-giving. We don't know much more about this tree, but it's used in Revelation, in in this this idea, this communication about what is eternal life, and that it's from this tree, as it were. We get to eat of that and have life. And so that is the tree of life, and that's one of these unique trees that's in the middle of the garden. But we see, secondly, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the tree of life occurs elsewhere. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is is kind of here, and that's it. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, and of course, you who have read ahead know uh, how big a a role it plays in in, uh, chapter 3. But the question is, what is this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's a long name, and it's not real clear what it means. And since it's not used often in the Bible, we have difficulty really narrowing down what it means. And so scholars have kind of debated over the years, and some thought that that uh, later on in chapter 3, since they eat of the tree and the first thing they recognize is that they're naked, that it must be some kind of sexual awareness is what's being communicated. I don't, I don't think that's what's going on. I think that's an aspect of it, but it's not. Uh, taking of that tree doesn't make one sexually aware. And others, others think that maybe this tree, taking of it, helps one discern between what is good and evil. That before they ate of the tree, they were simple. And uh, they just trusted God and did what God said, and they didn't think in terms of what is good and evil. Well, that, that has some merit to it, but I don't really think that's the case. They would have known obeying God is good, disobeying God is bad. They would have had that knowledge, I think, already. Uh, some think maybe it's omniscience. Eating of that tree would help them know everything, and they would be like God, omniscient. I don't think that's the case. Um, some think that the tree gives wisdom and, and the people were not supposed to have wisdom. They were, they were just to be simple. And I don't think that's really the case either. I think most likely what is uh, pictured in this tree is the idea of determining for oneself what is right and what is wrong, irrespective of what God says. Moral self-determination. So I look at this thing, this tree, and I think, well, I mean, you know, it looks good. Looks like it's tasty. I know God said don't do it, but I think really the good thing to do is for me to eat from it. Right? It's this idea of discerning, deciding morality apart from reference to God and who He is. 
You ever see that happen? You ever do that? I do that. It still exists. This isn't something that our first parents did and then was eradicated. I think we still have this issue that we want to determine for ourselves, based upon our own criteria, what is good and what is bad. And of course, my criteria usually have to do with what's good for me. And I don't really care what's good for you. Right? I'm the center of it. That's, that's kind of the heart of what's going on here. And so, you have these two unique trees, and of course, they're going to appear later in the story also. But in addition to these two unique trees and describing the garden, we also see these four rivers. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided, and it became four rivers. And then we have a description of each of those rivers and with names that are hard to pronounce and, and different aspects of them. But, but it seems like you've got this river flowing out of the garden, and then after it gets out of the garden, it parts ways and it goes four different directions. Which is interesting if you think about, you know, water flows downhill, that the Garden of Eden seems to have been a high place, more elevated than the, than the plains around it, perhaps, or more elevated than the places around it. It's, it's a high place, and actually, in Scripture, it's referred to as a mountain. If you think of Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 13 and 14, it's referred to as a mountain there, speaking to the king of Tyre. You read this, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. Describing Eden and talking about this, this king of Tyre, which seems to be imagery regarding Satan and other things like that. But the, the picture of the garden in that case is that it's not, you know, a flat piece of ground. It's a mountain. Eden is this mountain. And the garden is somewhere in there. And so uh, you've got this idea of it being a mountain. And here, in that context... God provides food. He provides a habitat for them to live in, suitable to their needs. Provided trees that were not just good for food, but also beautiful to look at. He had, he had provided all of their needs. That, that God had, had created this beautiful place and then he placed the man into it. And in that place, the man was taken care of. And if we, if we contrast this with the origin stories of the surrounding pagan nations that surrounded Israel, when, when they talk about where man came from, well, it was the gods who created man and their stories and things like that. But very often you see the situation where the gods were doing this work and they got tired of doing the work. So they created man to do the work for them because they, 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 were, they were tired and, and whatnot. And so you have man who's kind of just created to be slave labor. He's unimportant and he's, and he's not taken care of and the gods are mad at, the, at man half the time. In, in the surrounding nations, that's how people understood the relationship between God and man. That the gods are out to get us and we better do these things to appease the gods and, and God doesn't really take care of us and, and all of those things. And, and in contrast to all of that, the origin story of the Bible is about God's gracious and tender care for us. He creates this beautiful place that you would love to move to. 
He places the man right in the midst of that with everything provided for. He's a blessed creature. And so we're not just uh, created to be some kind of slave labor. We're not just created in some way that that, uh, God is going to destroy us in a whim and things like that. There's investment in mankind. The very breath of God has been breathed into the nostrils of this little dirt man. So yes, we come from the dirt and we have been honored with the breath of God. And so there's a great value on mankind. And I think as we pause here before we move on, we should recognize the simple blessings that we have in this life. Sometimes we can watch the news or perhaps we hear stories or maybe we're dealing with illness ourselves or or other difficulty and we can become pretty negative. And we can can become um, into this mindset where we think, you know, woe is me. This life is awful. See, I've got this limp or see, I've got this disease or see, these things are happening on the world stage or see these, woe is me. When in fact, this Eden creation is a beautiful place and though we don't live in Eden, yet we have plants that provide food for us. We have family around us. We have beautiful things to look at. We have a beautiful life. It's fraught with difficulty and challenge and hardship and all of those things. And it's beautiful. And I think we forget that all too often. I think we look to the difficulties of life maybe and, 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 uh, and forget that God has blessed us richly, even just in this creation. And so let's be a thankful people. The abundant provision is mentioned there in verse 16 as well, where where God says to him, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. So it didn't even have him on a diet, right? Just eat from that tree on Tuesday and that one on Wednesday. Whatever you want to eat from every tree, in the, it's abundant provision. That's what God has provided for us. And here, here we are in this day and age, 2022, and we've got our problems. We've got our problems. And we've got medicine that can solve so many of the problems we might have that we no longer have because God gave people brains and the ability to figure out how the body works and how to resolve medical issues. We have air conditioning if we need it. We have heaters if we need it. Jeff had a car to drive from Truckee to here and didn't have to walk. He had to pay 150 bucks in gas, but... He didn't have to walk. We live in a blessed time. And, and this, is, this is the fruition. This is the, the, the blessing and the benefit of even just this creation that God has placed us in. And we need to be a thankful people, even for those simple things. But we move on. What is man to do? Man has been created. He's been placed in the garden. He's been provided for by the garden itself. And our world provides for us. But what is man to do? Well, first of all, let's look at man's job or his ministry. In verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So we're created as gardeners, right? We're created as those who are to work and keep the garden. The first thing I want to notice is that, that here you have a guy with a job before the fall. So your job Having a job and having to work is not the result of the fall. We were created to work. 
and you recognize about yourself, if you think for, for just a second or two, that you are happier when you're being productive. When you get to work, that's how God designed us. And this work that we do and, and things like that is not the result of the fall, as if, as if Adam and Eve had never taken of the fruit, then, then we would all be you know, lounging in a hammock somewhere. No, we would have jobs doing something, right? We're created to work. And so man is created to work, though the frustration and maybe the unfruitfulness of our labor comes along with that after the fall. But secondly, I want to notice that he was created, placed in the garden to work it and to keep it. I'm not going to do an extensive study, but both of those words, to work and to keep, are words that are also used in the context of a priest ministering in the tabernacle. The same words. That you have, for example, in Numbers 3, verses 7 and 8, they shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. It's the same language. There seems to be an image, an idea going on here that, that what was going on in the garden was not just gardening it was a form of worship that Adam and Eve, well, Adam in this, in this instance here, were like priests. It was like a priest before God, doing priestly things, keeping the garden, working the garden. And so he was to uh, work the garden, he was to make it more productive and all of that, and he was to protect it uh, from anything that shouldn't be there. He was to guard and to keep the garden. That was the job that he was given to do. So he was placed in the garden to work it and to keep it. But you'll notice in verse 17, there is one prohibition of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat. There's one tree, one tree that you don't get to eat from the rest of them. And there was an abundance of every one of those trees. Eat all you want. But there's this one in the midst of the garden then you shall not eat from that one, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so you've got this situation where there's a test placed on the man. He's got all of this option. He's got all of this blessing before him. He's got all of these things he can pursue, all of this food he can eat. But there's the one prohibition. Don't eat from that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is, this is the first of the thou shalt nots in the Bible. Given to Adam, thou shalt not eat of that tree. Right? So we have, we have this test. And I think about even the, the temptations that we face in our own lives. When the temptation comes, that seems like, you know, God is restricting me in all of these areas, except this, this one area, that's what makes it so tempting, is, is God won't let me have any fun, and this thing is fun. Right? As if... As if Adam was, you know, standing there thinking, yeah, all, you know, all these trees, they're just awful. They're ugly to look at. And they're terrible. God's so restrictive. But there's that one tree. It looks like good food. I think I'll take it. That's what we do with temptation. We think God is restricting us. We think God has, has, has kept us from experiencing joy or knowing opportunity or knowing his blessing. When, in fact, he has blessed us generously. He's given us all of these options before us. He's given us all of these blessings. And yet, the way temptation works is it blinds our eyes to, to all of those options and all of that blessing. 
to where we think there's nothing there. God's keeping all of that from us. So I'm just going to take from this because, you know, I need, I, need, I need some food. And so that's kind of the way temptation works for us. And so it helps us to keep in mind what God has generously provided for us. He is not restrictive. He's not keeping us from having fun. He's not keeping us from having families. He's not keeping us from experiencing his blessing. But it comes with a warning as well. That one tree, don't eat of that tree. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Punishment for disobeying the command was death. That's pretty early in the story. You know, Adam's only been a sentient being for a little bit. And already he's being warned, don't do that thing, because in the day you do that thing, you will die. Well, it's difficult to understand exactly what is meant here by death and scholars uh, debate back and forth, but but uh, the man would guarantee death for himself the day he ate of it. Whether it was physical death, that second, whether it was physical death that would eventually come, whether it was spiritual death, whatever, he would guarantee that death for himself the moment he ate of that. That was the warning. And so, I want to notice, first of all, that this is... It's worded in the sense that don't do that thing or you will die. But if we flip that around, we reverse the language. If we understand it a different way, he's saying, do this, avoid that tree, and you will live. Do this and live, which, of course, sounds like the law. We read in Leviticus 18 and verse 5, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The essence of the law is, do this thing and you will live. Accomplish what God has told you to do, and when you do so, the reward will be life for you. We're just looking at it kind of in the reverse in Genesis chapter 2, where he's telling us, don't do that thing. Because if you do that thing, you will die. In other words, do this and live. And so you have this promise of life for obedience, and you've got the tree of life right there. You've got a promise of life for obedience. You've got a, uh, the threat of death for disobedience. And I, I don't want to spoil the story for anyone who hasn't read into chapter 3 yet. <laughs> it doesn't go well. This law being placed before them, this simple law with this one prohibition placed before them is problematic. And so we read Paul reflecting on this very passage in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We've not gotten to that place in our story, but that's the direction it's headed. And Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 are, are, are created together to be one story. And, and we're going to see this prohibition is given here and it's going to be broken in just a few verses. Where the threat of death becomes the reality of death. And God was merciful when they took of the fruit and he, he didn't kill them right away. He could have done so. Death does eventually come. But there is a separation between them and God. And it's pictured in chapter 3 by the fact that they are booted out of the garden. There's an angel put in the way who bars re-entry. 
There's a separation between them and God that, that in this part of the story is not there yet. And that's what happens with the breaking of the law. That's what happens when, when God says, do this and live, and we don't do that. As we suffer that penalty. There is a, a distance between us and God, between, between the, this creature created from the dust into whom was breathed the breath of life and the God who made him. And this is crucial for us in, in understanding how the rest of the Bible is going to paint this relationship between God and man. I, I commented earlier that, that God had created this beautiful garden with everything provided for man. And then he took man and he placed him in the midst of it. And it was a, a beautiful and wonderful scenario where there's intimacy with God and there's provision with God and there's great care by God given to the man. There's this relationship where there's been honor given to the, 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 the creature of dirt by receiving the breath of life. And he takes that law, he takes that command, and man breaks it. Causes a separation where there was this great unity. And of course, we see that now, don't we? We see a separation between, between man and God. We see it in the world around us. It's, it's why wars happen. It's why people hate one another. It's why we see sin rampant in our world the way it is. Because there's a separation between God and man, that separation caused by his sin. And the rest of the Bible is going to tell the story, pointing forwards ultimately to Jesus himself, who will come on the scene, and by the way, he will be called the last Adam, standing in the place of the first Adam. But whereas the first Adam, given this prohibition, broke it, the last Adam, Jesus, comes on the scene, and he receives the entirety of the law of God, and he keeps it. Do this and live? Jesus did that. And he earned life. He should have lived. But of course, having obeyed in our place, he also went to the cross. The place of bearing the penalty of God's punishment for our disobedience. And so, instead of receiving the life, instead of getting to skip out on death because of his obedience, instead... He actually goes to the cross on purpose, not for his own sin, but for your sin and for my sin. To the place of punishment. And the wrath of God is poured out on him. To the death. Paying in its full the penalty that we owed because of our sin. And God looked at that offering. He looked at his life of obedience. He looked at that offering of his life in place of ours. And he was pleased with it. And he raised Jesus from the dead. Where he overcame death and received newness of life. And then he ascended to the Father's right hand. And the Bible says that if you and I will look to him, we'll, we'll recognize our own context, recognize that, that we are worse than Adam. And our sin damns us. If we will look at our context and see that we deserve death. But Jesus earned life. And he offers that for me. By faith in him. And if I will look away from my own accomplishment. If I will look away from, from uh, the things that I think are going to appease God or appease me. Or, or any of those things. And if I will look to Jesus. Who is the one who obeyed and earned life. If I will look to him, he will give that life to me. 
my sin taken away, and life given in its place. And so Paul continues in Romans chapter 5. He says, the free gift, verse 15, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And so this story starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 with the one simple prohibition in the midst of abundant provision for Adam and with the instruction, do this and live, or in other words, don't eat of that tree because if you do, you will die. That starts the story of our lives. And you and I didn't face a moment in our life where uh, we were innocent like Adam was and we were given a prohibition and we broke that prohibition. That happened in Adam. And you and I inherit that sin, for one thing, and we inherit the tendency to follow right after that sin, don't we? Because when God gives you and me a prohibition, it's a toss-up whether we're going to do that thing or not. Because we have the same sin. And today, if, if you are in this room, if you are listening to this, and, and that's still you, and that guilt for your sin weighs upon you and you have not had that paid for in Christ, you have the opportunity even now to look to Jesus. Trust in Him and you will find Him to be a perfect Savior and your sins will be placed upon Him and punished in Him and His righteousness granted to you so that now you have life. Now you have righteousness before God. You have peace with God. You will see what Adam has done here in Genesis chapter 3 in your life has been undone. Not that sin is gone, but its penalty is gone. And you have peace with God. And whereas Adam and Eve will be barred from the garden, will be kicked out of it, there will be separation between them and God because of what they have done. Yet in Christ we find that the way back into God's presence is open for us. That veil is torn and we stand before God as His children. And if you are in this room and you know Christ and you have been forgiven of your sin and you have, you have trusted in Jesus and, and you have understood this about yourself, my appeal even today is that we would think about it again. Not because you need to be saved again, but because we need to behold the truth and the glory and the beauty of that salvation. The fact that we are just like Adam, only worse, and yet by faith in Christ, we have access to God. Confidence, boldness to enter into His presence. We have peace with Him. The way that was barred has been unbarred. And we have entry into the very presence of God in Jesus. And there is no more glorious truth that has ever been pondered. And so let's think about that together. And as we do that, what we find is as we think about this salvation and what has been done for us in Christ, as we, as we see that lifted up, as we understand more and more how beautiful that is, we come to love Him more and more because He's the one who provided that for us.
And so the things around us that would catch our attention, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, suddenly no longer seems so tempting because we know God. We know this salvation by grace that Jesus has given us. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil pales in comparison. Its leaves are withered in comparison to who Christ is. We love Him more. And so even as we begin Genesis, we see a peek into the end of all things in Christ. And so may God work in our hearts as we behold Jesus that we would love Him more. That we would see all the more how beautiful He is. And that we would take that in the face of temptation, in the face of other things that would crowd in to to catch our attention, and that we would love Jesus more than those things. And then when we look at our uh, person who lives across the street who doesn't know Jesus, and we would want them to know that. We would want them to know that same peace with God that you and I have. And we would be so bold as to go and begin to talk to them. What a beautiful picture we have here in Genesis chapter 2. And when we think about the wonderful place God created and placed Adam, you and I are in a wonderful place also. We enjoy that fellowship with God even now because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful for your mercy towards me in Christ. I am grateful that you didn't leave that way barred back into Eden, back into your presence. In Christ, that veil has been torn in two and we have access right into your presence, right into the Holy of Holies because of Jesus. All by your grace and what Jesus accomplished on our behalf and ours by simple faith. I pray that you, by your Spirit, would work in us a greater and greater love for Jesus as we see him lifted up, even in this story back in Genesis chapter 2, that we would see Jesus for what he is really like, that he would be magnified in our estimation that we would direct one another towards this Jesus and the world around us too. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family come up front to pray with you if you would like to come and pray with them. They love that ministry. They love to pray for you. And if you have questions for them, they would love to answer them as well. And uh, the kids who have finished their blast zone, you can have opportunity up here to talk to Miss Brianna and uh, discuss that with her. I want to close with these words from Second John. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and in love. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.